This is a crowd podcast. I crossed the Baltic Sea last summer on a ferry like the Estonia. I wanted to experience the overnight journey for myself and get a sense of the size of these ships. We're nearly at the bottom of the ferry, so I suppose we must be close to the waterline. This is the car deck, so yes, I wouldn't like to spend too much time down here. I went down as far as I could go, and then worked my way up the rather grand staircase. Deck four, which again appears to be another vehicle deck. It was a bustling atmosphere, busy with families and groups of friends, probably heading to one of the many cafes, restaurants and bars on board. And here on six, um, the first floor where I can really look out and see the sea, which is still looking quite smooth. It really brought home just how huge ferries like this are, the number of different floors and corridors, and how easy it is to get lost. There's a gift and toy shop, there's a restaurant, there's a bar. It made me think how amazing it was that Carl Eric got himself from the bottom to the top to save his life. I found the crossing a pretty airy experience. Seeing all those people excited about their evening ahead just made me think back to that September night in 1994 and all those passengers who would have been feeling the same thing. But of course, they never made it to their destination. After the sinking, the survivors and relatives of the victims were promised transparency. But what they got instead were layers of secrecy and a literal cover-up. In this episode, we're going to question all the things we've learned so far and assess where things stand in the search for the truth. This is the secret history of the Estonia with me, Stephen Davis. There's something we need to return to from episode one. I got to the railing and I looked into the water and that's where I see something strange. Something strange uh, that moves from where I'm looking, like from the right to the left, and it's moving like slowly, and the water is like uh, a smaller waves are like going over it, and it uh, and it it like disappears, like but it uh, slowly, slowly. After Kalia could run up from his cabin and made it onto the outer deck, he saw this mysterious object in the water. His attention then got diverted by an Estonian passenger and the need to make an escape plan. Now, as we heard earlier in the series from the investigator Margus Kerm, the interviews with the survivors after the disaster were quite sporadic. They weren't done in a systematic way. Here's Carl Eric. I can tell you that um, the commission never tried to uh, interview me, but uh, the Swedish police called me. And uh, that was uh, probably the first day I was back in Sweden. And that was a phone call. And uh, I was asked a lot of questions. And uh, I answered to all these questions. And then that was it. Then years later, at a meeting for fellow survivors, Carl Eric was shown a transcript of this telephone interview. He'd never seen it before. 
He didn't even know it existed. And it didn't accurately reflect what he'd said. Some key details had been altered. Rather than a description of the object he saw, it was written up as white spots in the water. I never had to sign a document that this what I said and maybe was uh, maybe could uh, have been wrongly understood or whatever, or maybe I did not express myself correctly. I was shocked then when I read that that what I had seen in the water was changed to white spots. I saw something that seemed to be white in the dark, but that there was one item that was several meters, several meters, and then moved in the water and so on. It like floated away with a little bit of water, smaller waves going over it while it, you know, slowly disappeared to the left, you know. Just to summarize then, the Swedish police interviewed you. You described this object that you had seen in the water or or you had that you had seen something in the water and it was moving and it was several feet long you're not sure what it was when you finally saw their transcript of the interview that uh, you had given they had changed that to you saw white spots no you know in the end i can never be sure I mean, maybe that's how the police officer understood everything, uh, you know. But the thing is, if I would have gotten that on paper, I would have reacted on that. If I would have had a meeting, you know, eye to eye to uh, with a police officer, and I would have said, no, this is not exactly what I meant. As an investigative reporter, the fact that the police did an interview with you and seemingly changed something important you said even the fact that as you said they did not send you the transcript of the interview i mean this is we don't know but what you saw could have been something really important to the story of the sinking of the estonia mm, yes and maybe not i mean but i mean at least this was not correctly done and, and if you want to have as much information as possible and so on, you have to make sure that you've understood everything the right way. So uh, even if someone expresses something on the phone unclearly and so on, and you put it like that on paper, then it's not enough. I mean, you should uh, try more. And then some years later, Carl Eric was interviewed by a lawyer who worked for the shipbuilders of the Estonia. He felt that this lawyer was trying to get him to say that what he saw in the water was a submarine. And uh, I was telling that that I, I have no idea. I have never seen submarines like in, in the sea and I have no idea how they look like. I can only say this, that this thing was several meters long and seemed to be like white, maybe light gray, but not, I mean, compared to this black sea water that I saw, it was lighter than the water and so on. But they did everything right because they sent me two samples of uh, the script of the tape that they had taken. And I could, uh, if there were some things that I found uh, unclear or wrong or so on, I could change that. And then I could keep uh, one sample for myself and the other one I sent back to the lawyer in Finland. So here we have one of the key theories behind the sinking, that a submarine was somehow involved. We're going to return to this a bit later in this episode. But before we do, there's another intriguing detail we should discuss. 
When I was interviewing Anders Eriksson, the man who survived six hours in a Baltic storm underneath a lifeboat, he told me something I'd never heard mentioned before. He said that when he was studying the official investigation report, he saw there was a map of all the ships in the area at the time of the sinking, and he noticed something strange. There are two unidentified vessels moving around the area one and a half hour after. Two unidentified vessels. And that I have uh, noticed and asked uh, the Swedish investigation committee about, and they haven't answered yet. So they've never been identified? No. What was that? Two vessels moving around one and a half hour after this sinking. We looked into this, and Anders is indeed right. In the official report, there's a map showing the movements of all the nearest ships. Their paths are plotted using radar observations, and there are two points labelled as unknown vessels in the area between 2.51am and 5.56am. Of course, we can only speculate as to what these ships might be. It does seem odd. Why wouldn't the Official Accident Commission know what they are? Was information being withheld from them? Could they be military vessels? We asked Jonas Beckstrand, who heads up the current Swedish state inquiry, if he could give us any clarification on this. No, I cannot. I would like myself to know um, what vessels uh, that were. Um, They are pointed out in the Jike report at a timing of the rescue efforts. I, I don't know what kind of ships that are, but if you if you consider the uh, the um, marine traffic uh, structure of the Baltic Sea at that time, my guess would be that it's cargo vessels passing by, but I don't know. And uh, I have we have tried to to find out, but to do that today is very hard. Anders also told me that since seeing the Discovery TV documentary, he now views the sinking as a crime and he's officially reported it to the Swedish police. That's the police matter to investigate. I can't do it. The police should do it. But they haven't? No. He shared copies with us of his many emails to the police. But at the time of recording, no criminal investigation had been started. We said from the beginning that if we don't take care of the disaster site, we will never get a closure in this. Lennart Berglund, from the Foundation for Relatives of Estonia Victims, has campaigned from day one for the bodies to be recovered. The revelations about the hole in the hull have only strengthened his feelings on this. And we just continue to say that, okay, we, we at least tell us what happened. That's the least you, you can do for us. But now when we have seen this uh, documentary where the new uh, holes were discovered, it's not enough anymore. Now we need to find the real truth behind all this. You're not going to stop? No, we are not going to stop. And we are now starting to uh, demand even the same thing as we did from the beginning to recover both the bodies and the wreck. And it's still, it's, it's difficult, but still uh, doable to recover the wreck and the bodies. As far as we understand, yes. We are no, no experts in this, but we understand that it's, that should not be a, a problem. So let's talk about the official 
explanation for the disaster. It, it seemed to me, looking at it, that they had an early explanation and they just stuck to that, yeah. regardless of any other evidence. If that had happened, the ship would have turned around, floating upside down, maybe for at least hours, but maybe days. But she went down in less than one hour. So the, the whole must have been uh, happening at the sea level, at the surface. Now they are trying to say that these holes that are discovered were caused by when Estonia hit the seabed. But uh, regardless, even if some of them happened that way, they still have to explain the sinking sequence. But in any event, uh, my understanding is the seabed is soft, it's not rocky. Now they have found some rocks, of course. Of course. But as I said, even if the holes, some of them, have occurred when she hit the seabed, some of them must have occurred at the surface, or she would not have sank this way. Let's talk about the military aspects of it. In 1998, which was six years before the Swedish government admitted to the smuggling operation, my MI6 source told me about it. And then the Swedes finally admitted to it. And what I was told uh, specifically was that this part of Swedish intelligence called KSI. Yes, yes. I I found that um, when I talk to Swedish journalists, there's there's a reluctance even to discuss it. You're not supposed to even acknowledge its existence. Exactly. We have asked for documents in the archives of the special police, the security police from KSI. We have been told that they don't even have archives or archive records, so they can see if they have any documents related to Estonia. What do you think, just putting you on the spot, what do you think is the most likely explanation for what happened to the Estonia? Well, I think that the most likely thing is that there was something in the cargo. How she went down, I don't know, but it's obvious that there must be a hole from somewhere on the surface. So if she hit something, uh, a towing barge, or it can also be a submarine that that she was uh, collided with. But the most likely thing is that something happened to the ship on the surface, and the reason for not doing anything was not to show what was in the cargo. It's not just in Sweden that documents remain hidden. When I've asked the UK Foreign Office about why they signed the treaty banning dives to the wreck, I've been told they don't have a record of this. Even in the land of the free, the United States, documents about the sinking have been kept secret. There are at least three files about the sinking of the Estonia in the archives of the National Security Agency. The documents are classified because their disclosure could reasonably be expected to cause serious damage to the national security. That's according to the NSA. The Baltic is, after all, one of the most monitored stretches of water for submarine activity in the world. I asked Sarah, one of the survivors we spoke to in the first two episodes, how she felt about a government using a ferry with ordinary citizens on it to smuggle potentially dangerous material. It's not okay at all, and I would like to see the risk assessment they did before doing that. It's not okay. And I, I still also think it's very strange that in Sweden this is still very sensitive. So if you talk about this going on, because it's really clear it's going on. At the same time, it's also difficult because you can't say there is a direct connection between the military transports and the, and the accident, of course. 
but um, of course it should be further investigated. And what I didn't know in 2004 when I was so happy or satisfied that the, the government appointed someone to look into this. I know today that he got really a restricted mission and he was asked to see if the Swedish military force had some um, military transport on Estonia that night, but not if someone else had. And I saw military transports going towards to Estonia. Are you hopeful? Do you, do you think they'll finally be honest? They'll finally just have a full, comprehensive investigation? Well, I don't think they will do this by themselves. I think they need to be forced to do that because this is not something that they want to go back to again. It's not something that they are proud of, I guess. But I think that the need for us to know is still there. So I think we need to push and that this needs to be further investigated. How long did it take you to recover? I was 20 at the time and I was so impatient and a bit annoyed, I would say, about this accident. And I didn't feel well at all for a long time. So when I look back, I think it maybe took me about two years to recover. But that doesn't mean that I didn't do anything during this, those two years. I did a lot of things. I study and I travel and I did a lot of things, but my mind was very busy with this accident. You kept thinking about it. Mm. Did they give you any help? Did you have any counselling or equivalent? Yeah, my mom. she wanted me to have treatment and I did it in the beginning for her. But then I, I accepted it and I thought it was really good. So I had trauma treatment. And you say you were traveling and, and keeping yourself busy. Um, did you go on ferries again? I did a year after, the summer after. And didn't feel any worry about that? No, not so. I, but I said to myself, like, I was 20 and I didn't want this accident to stop me in somehow. So it was very important for me to be able to travel again. You didn't want the disaster to define your life? No, exactly. In the first few years, were you the kind of person that thought, yes, I trust my government to explain all this? Yeah, of course. I'm a Swedish citizen, grown up in this country, and I, I trusted them very 100%. Did you start to worry when they had said, we will bring the ferry up and we'll bring the bodies up, and they did the opposite? What, what did you think about that? That was really, really strange discussion in the whole society at the time. Uh, the normal thing is that you recover the body as soon as you can. But that didn't happen and there was a big debate in Sweden and um, the question was handed out to everyone. Is it right or wrong to collect the bodies? And that question is really, really strange. Normally you, you don't ask people about it. You, If you can collect the bodies, you do. If you can't, you don't do it. So I didn't understand. I thought it was really strange and I didn't want to be part of that debate because I thought it was something that uh, the relatives should decide. I was not a relative, I was a survivor. I didn't lost anyone. But then uh, from my perspective today and also because after the, some years I started to study psychology and today I work with um, um, disaster management and, and, and disasters. So from my perspective today, I knew this is totally 
different from everything else that I've seen during 20 years in my work life. All countries, no matter wherever in the world you are, they do everything they can to collect their bodies. After earthquakes, disaster ferries, plane crashes, train crashes, everything. Just um, a small diversion then. Um, did you have dinner with Kent? Yes, we had dinner. It was a few weeks later. Um, yeah. That must have felt a little odd, but also fantastic. Yeah, it was really difficult actually because we were really happy to be uh, alive, um, but it was also very difficult. It was not easy to be happy. How often are the two of you in touch? Well, me and Kent, we get in touch some few times every year or some occasions, but it doesn't matter so much how many times we see each other. It's just, for me, very safe and comfortable that he is there somewhere. Uh, it's very nice to have shared this experience with someone else. Do you think you felt what people have identified sometimes as survivor's guilt? Well, maybe... Uh, but at the time I got so many questions like if I had survivor guilt I felt guilty that I didn't have survivor guilt but it doesn't mean that I it was easy and I also felt a little bit responsible because I was a witness I was there when they died and I still feel that like um, I, I want to be make sure that I contribute with all the pieces that I have from this story. So that the truth can be told. Exactly. Do you want more crowd podcasts? Let me tell you about the Crowd Stories channel. It's where you can find all of Crowd's documentaries. In one place. And for just £1 a week, they're ad-free. Addictive documentaries like American Vigilante. I'm a monster hunter. It's what I do. And murder in house too. I know you know what happened. You want to keep it to yourself, you suit yourself. You're going down. You can binge our groundbreaking audio fiction series, Eliza, a robot story. I have 302 minutes, 34 seconds, and two milliseconds to tell this story. And immerse yourself in the stories of death of a rock star. Just search for Crowd Stories on Apple Podcasts. And hit the subscribe button. See you there. Paul Barney escaped the Estonia on one of the last lifeboats. He'd crawled up some pipework onto the hull and inched across the full length of the ship to get to the life raft. During his escape, he witnessed a fellow passenger get swept away. In our interview, I asked Paul what he'd put his amazing escape down to. Good decision-making, sheer luck or a combination of them both? It's something that's plagued me for <laughs> quite a few years as to why and what and wherefore. <laughs> Everything was a 50-50 decision. If you made the wrong one, it was almost like I wouldn't be here telling the story. So many occasions I could have made the wrong decision, but it wasn't as though I was sitting down making those decisions. I was actually doing them intuitively. So if, the, if there was a question about what to do, then it just, it was immediate. It wasn't uh, deliberated on. Now, other people like Sarah, who was also did the same thing. She'd started, ironically, she started, well, I don't know about the irony, but, but she started in exactly the same place in the restaurant. 
as me, pretty much across the aisle. And she took a completely different route, ended up on the same life raft as me, which is, is bizarre. In the aftermath, how do you think uh, you cope psychologically? Did it affect you badly? Did it, or did you just, you found you got over it quickly? No, I don't think you can get over that, something like that. You can normalise, you can, you can cope. You know, it manifests itself in various, many different ways. It stays with you. To be in a situation like that for a prolonged period of time has a marked effect on you. It can be life-enhancing. It can be, but it can also be debilitating at times. In the years since the tragedy, Paul has been affected by PTSD. The PTSD didn't set in immediately. There seems a very strange period pre-PTSD where you're almost in a semi-dream state where everything seems quite surreal, but also very, even more real, you know. It was almost like a sense of being more in touch with the, the universe, if you like. I don't know, it's very hard to explain in the in standard language. I've heard survivors talk about this sort of thing in other accidents. It's almost like um, everything is more vivid. I think that would be true, yes, absolutely. I think um, one of the things that I'm not quite sure I'm ready to know how I feel about, but there was the sense at the time that there was no separation between life and death. And it was the same on that life raft. The dead, I was amongst the dead, and yet they had the same right and presence to be there as the living. So there was absolutely, for me, there was a period of no separation between the living and the dead, which seems bizarre, and obviously they were left, but they had every right to be there as the living, if you like. And it's something that stayed with me all these years and not necessarily resolved or understood fully. How long did you suffer from uh, PTSD or are you still suffering from it? I'd say at this moment in time, I'm not suffering from PTSD. But I have suffered over the years in various manifestations. And even though you think sometimes you're free of it, but you're not. You still have nightmares. I don't get nightmares now. But I did. I asked Carl Eric how he feels all these years later about how the disaster was handled, particularly in terms of the promises to raise the ship and then the aborted attempt to bury it in concrete. I think that uh, the Swedish government should um, now, almost 30 years later, say that they did it terribly wrong and they should uh, ask us for forgiveness. I mean, look what uh, governments have done or institutions that deal with accidents and so on. So far, until the Estonia catastrophe, they always did it the other way. So why, why did they do this time everything totally differently? There is no logical explanation for that. And as long 
as the Swedish government has uh, documents that are classified around this, then we have the right to feel that something is totally wrong. If they say that this was an ordinary accident, I mean, but uh, a huge but ordinary accident, uh, then, then there is no reason to have classified information. He feels quite strongly that Sara's eyewitness account should be taken more seriously. We have Sara Hedrenius who saw military transport getting on the ferry. Um, I mean, I was not going out to look what was happening when we were in the port. So I, I have uh, no opinion on, on that, but I have an opinion on Sara Hedrenius because uh, there were meetings for survivors and so on. And she uh, told us immediately already that she had seen a transport like that. So this is not something that she is making up. Uh, she has told the story all the time. Of course, there were not people listening to her who should have listened and so on, and they are still not listening. The TV documentary was a pivotal moment for Carl Eric. He was interviewed for it, and it was one of the first times he'd opened up about his experience. I never wanted to speak with people about this catastrophe, and, and the first years after the catastrophe, everything was, you know, I was feeling so bad. And I did not want to get reminded about this all and so on. But then when uh, Henrik Evertsson, when he wanted to have this interview, I was happy that finally there was a journalist who seemed to be interested in, in finding out something and who had the guts to do something that uh, uh, most Europeans would not be prepared to do, to risk to go to prison to take a look. And he could not be sure that he would find something. And then when I finally could see the film together with him and his team, this was really, I started to cry and so on. You know, when this film came out, it was 26 years after the catastrophe. So uh, I was 26 when the catastrophe happened. And, and then I got some extra 26 years. And somehow I've told myself that uh, this is now the time that uh, I have to speak about this thing and I have to, you know, get myself together to be honest and give interviews and, and so that people understand what it uh, means for us who survived the catastrophe, that it is not an easy thing that we had to experience. And, and the way we were treated is not the right way. And of course, when we speak about survivors, we should not forget all the family members of those uh, passengers who did not survive, and that's the majority of the passengers. We're going to return now to the small community of Lindisberg in central Sweden. This is an area that lost 33 people in the tragedy. I sat down with Anna Karen, who was a teenager when she lost her mother on the Estonia. So, uh, at what stage did you start to think there might be something about this that they don't want people to know? Um, it's hard to remember exact dates or even years, but I think uh, it was pretty early on uh, and it had to do with the, the question about taking the bodies up or not. And, and when they decided not to, uh, I think many of us just felt that something was just not right. Uh, they are they hiding something? What 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 is this all about? You know, because the natural thing to do would be to take the bodies home, uh, save the ones that could be saved, and take them home. And uh, yeah, so I think that was uh, 
one of the crucial moments for me that I just started thinking about why are they hiding something or what's wrong here. They more or less decided to try and bury your mother and the others in concrete. Yeah, they did. I mean, it's a fundamental human right to be able to bury your dead. Yeah, it is. I think so. Here's Linnea, who was just seven when the Estonia went down with her mother on board. If they have tried to take up all the bodies at the beginning when she had just sank, then you and me shouldn't have sit here today. If my mother was home and buried at home, then this wouldn't have happened. I think that's a very big issue that they didn't even try. And had they tried, then I think that we shouldn't have continued to do this after this amount of years. We wouldn't still be arguing, it wouldn't still be talking about it. No, I don't think so. The government at the time was advised by the Ethics Council not to salvage the bodies and to declare the wreck a burial site. According to some, it would be too dangerous and traumatic for divers, and it wouldn't be possible to recover all the bodies. In his statement, the Prime Minister said there was broad approval in the Swedish Parliament for this. But in the years that followed, members of the Ethics Council began to have doubts about the process. One leader said, what if we were misled? The question is sort of eating me now. The new State Investigation Commission has done what the original one failed to do, which is speak with survivors and relatives. It has made efforts to be more transparent and open. Here's Linnea again. I've been to a lot of meetings with the new commissions, where they're telling us what they're doing and what they have seen and everything like that. But um, it's like they're not doing enough. I don't think so. So when you talk to them and when you hear this, do you think some of the other people have suggested to us that they're, they're almost just going to do enough to make it all go away again, but not enough to find out the truth? I hope we will find out the truth. But I can't say if, if it's going to be like that or if it's just going to be, a, oh, this is what happened, so close it and then forget it again, please. I hope that doesn't occur, but we don't know. In these meetings with officials, have any of them expressed to you regret for all these years of of telling you one story which is now not true? No, nothing. Has anybody said sorry to you? No, no one. What would be your best solution if you were in charge? What, What do you really want? What is the best result for you? I would like a total new investigation, not just including the holes. I want the whole sinking process, how, how did it happen from the start, not just looking at the holes. But I think we need to do it all over again. And also, I think of all the bodies, those who are in that condition or are outside the boat, pick them up. They should not rest on the bottom of the sea. I also asked Anna Karen what the best outcome for her would be. A real investigation of what happened when the ship went down. Um, and also, if possible, I would like my mother to come back home, you know, to take the bodies from the ship. The ones that, that, that are able to pick up, 
that would be, yeah. I would like to know what happened and I would like her to come home so I can have a closure. After our interview, Angelica, who was eight years old when she lost her mother, took me to a cemetery on the outskirts of town where there's a monument to the tragedy. There were similar statues all over the area in the hometowns of those who died. Okay, so we've just uh, reached the memorial, which is set off by itself uh, in a clearing, but with lots of trees, tall trees, and some really beautiful flowers, purples, yellows, and pinks in front of it, and uh, a plaque. Um, so is the bit on the bottom, is that, a, is that a poem? Yeah, it's a poem. Okay, if you wouldn't mind just um, uh, translating the poem for us. Mm-hmm. Don't cry at my grave because I'm not there. I'm the bird that flies in the sky. I'm the wave that hits the beach. I'm the flower that bows on the field. I'm the wind that touches your cheek. So don't cry at my grave because I'm not there. That last bit is quite appropriate really for a disaster where the people aren't there, mm. and um, and you and the others have never had a chance to to bury your loved ones, you to bury your mother, and all these years later, nothing's been done. No, no. The sinking of the Estonia cost eight hundred and fifty-two lives. A series of flawed investigations and dubious decisions has left survivors without answers and the families of victims without a grave at which to mourn. As we've heard across the series, it's not easy to reach a conclusion about what happened that fateful night in September 1994. But here's what we do know. We know there were smuggling operations happening on the Estonia. Initially, this was revealed by my MI6 source, and was then disclosed by the customs officer who blew the whistle. This was then confirmed by the judge's inquiry. The Western intelligence agencies were taking a risk by using a civilian ferry, in effect, turning the passengers into a form of human shield. My sources have told me that Russia warned the Estonian intelligence services to stop these shipments, but that this warning wasn't heeded. We also now know there's a large hole in the Estonia's hull, approximately 4 metres by 1.2 metres. The investigations into this continue, as does the muddying of waters about its cause. It's been a feature of this whole investigation that as soon as one piece of evidence is discovered, a contradicting piece of evidence is suddenly found, enough to complicate matters and to keep the investigation at a stalemate. Whatever the cause of the hole, the sinking sequence has never been properly explained. If, as the official report stated, it was water on the car deck that caused the sinking, then why didn't the Estonia float upside down like other similar vessels? Why did it sink so fast? A hole in the hull seems the best explanation for this. And what about the object that Carl Erich saw? Some have said that a submarine could have caused the hole. In fact, Margus Kerm has been quoted as saying, considering that the tear is below the waterline, 
and considering none of the survivors have said they saw a ship close to Estonia, the most likely cause is Estonia collided with a submarine. Others suggest the Estonia was sunk by a mine. The metal analysis I revealed earlier in the series, the one by independent American experts, strongly suggests some kind of explosion, as does the evidence found by Lars Ongström. So, I'm going to put forward what I think is a plausible theory for why the Estonia sank. It's a theory that would explain some of the things that the official investigation simply failed to explain. We know the Russians found out about the smuggling operation, and they wanted to put a stop to it. We have multiple sources confirming they issued a warning. After the warnings were ignored, my theory is that Russian operatives or a third party acting on behalf of the Russian government or its intelligence services placed a mine on the ferry. Its aim was probably to prevent the Estonia from completing its journey, to damage it and force it back to port. A stronger warning to the West. But the operation went wrong and the mine caused more damage than was intended, possibly because of the state of repair of the locks on the bow door and the storm. The ship sank and 852 people died. There will of course never be any confirmation of this. Some independent news outlets in Russia previously reported the mine theory and pointed the finger at their own government. But these outlets no longer exist. Putin's Russia is not a place where transparency rules. And it's clear that MI6 or the KSI will never admit their alleged roles in the smuggling. My research trip to Sweden and Estonia was an incredibly moving experience. It's a long journey from my home in New Zealand, but it was worth it to hear the powerful testimonies of survivors and family members. I'm grateful to all of them for sharing their stories with me. On my last day in Sweden, there was one final place I wanted to visit. We're here at the memorial to uh, those who lost their lives on the Estonia. It's in a beautiful park in Stockholm next to the Nordic Museum. There are three walls, grey granite. On the walls are 815 names of people who died in this terrible tragedy. Um, Out of the 852 in total, it turns out there are a number of families who didn't want their names on the wall. We're not sure why, we're not sure whether it was a protest against the way the Swedish government handled things or other issues, but um, um, yes, it's not quite a complete list. But the number of names on the walls, the three walls, is, is overwhelming, really. So I'm looking at the wall now, looking at all these names and wondering about the stories behind the names. People who were on the ferry, taking a holiday, having a party trip to Estonia, Estonians who were going to Sweden, there'll be a story behind each name. Christina Larsen, Leo Castapalo. There's one here that says Eva, Jenny and Sophia Venenberg. May Larsen. Daniel Johnson, Alvira Botka, Ben Hamu, Charlotte Erickson, 
Magnus Anderson, Marianne Anderson, Monica Anderson, Ruth Anderson, Jan Eric Peterson, Lennart Peterson, Annika Langstrom. The Secret History of the Estonia is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis, and produced by Samantha Syke. Mixing and sound designers by Rory Alskery. The executive producer is Steve Jones. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. To listen to the entire series ad-free and for exclusive bonus episodes, Subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Thanks to Luis Rodriguez at Sonic Space Lab Music for studio recording. Robert Wallace, Louisa Adams, Taya Carley and Lisa Hanley for research and production support. Johan Lindquist and Levika Hanston for their readings. And William Sleeth for translations. Additional material across the series courtesy of Discovery Plus, Getty, and Sverge Radio. The biggest thanks must go to all those who took part in the series, in particular the survivors and family members of victims. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.